Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 197. On today's show, we talk about food in the ancient world. Let's dig a little deeper into those tasty sewers. Gross. Welcome to the show, everybody. How's it going? Good. We're coming off of uh, a short episode that we had to kind of <laughs> slot in where <laughs> I recorded. And, and to be honest, when I recorded that little segment about the really terrible show La Brea, Rachel hadn't seen it yet. Right. Mm. And now she's kind of binging it. I mean, I'm not going to say I hate it. <laughs> there's like, there's a lot wrong with it from a scientific perspective. Right. And also from a like stupid character perspective. But it's also kind of fun. Like, well, yeah. I don't hate a world where, like, you fall through a sinkhole and are 10,000 years ago. Like, that sounds kind of fun. So One of our longtime commenters <laughs> and listeners mentioned in an email to me, he's like, I don't think you need to, like, rebut the show La Brea. It's just, like, too bad. He's <laughs> like, like, you may as well <laughs> you may as well do the Flintstones. And I'm like, ooh. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually a really good point, though. Like, maybe you don't always need to be looking at pop culture from a is it right is it perfect is it accurate perspective sometimes you can just have fun with it if it's not you know dangerous well, the way ancient apocalypse is almost dangerous you the, know but the point of this show is to look at how archaeology is portrayed in media and we do it through news articles mm-hmm. but that's also through tv shows yeah. and you know things like that so you know how is it portrayed is it you know what did they get wrong what did they get right i mean mm-hmm. that's kind of what we do yeah so pop is. culture is part of that it is but yeah. you can also have fun too and just like yeah. enjoy something for the really bad sci-fi that it is <laughs> yeah indeed indeed <laughs> yeah so we've got three news articles to kind of kick back into this and yeah. we are going to talk about those now they're all food related because i when i was doing the original research for this i actually found a couple of food related articles and then thought, well, I've got two. Yeah. So let's find what a third. else can we find? Yeah. yeah. And I guess food has kind of been in the news lately as far as ancient yeah. cultures and archaeology goes. So that was kind of neat. Well, and I feel like news outlets too try to come up with stuff based around what's currently going on because one of the ones that we're going to talk about in segment two actually came around and they talked about the oldest leftovers. That's the language yeah. they use because it came out around Thanksgiving. Right, right, right. So, oh, yeah. You know, that could be yeah, purposely driven by the news and the media. Yeah. Whatever. We'll yeah. take it. <laughs> All right. This room is from an outlet called DW, whatever that means. And it's called Evidence of Cooking 780,000 Years Ago Rewrites <laughs> Again Human History. Human History has been rewritten many times. I know, but like this article, like that might actually be like real kind of. Sure. It might be a real rewriting. I mean, <laughs> it just rewrites. Yeah. The narrative obviously it yeah. doesn't change anything about like who we are and where we are now. But yeah. Yeah. You know, but and when you go back this far, everything new that we find, it doesn't rewrite anything. It adds to the story. Yeah. You know, it's not like we 
quote, got it wrong. We're just filling in holes. Yeah, exactly. And that this is a really good example of that. What basically happened here is they had a hypothesis mm-hmm. that this is what was happening. And then they went and found evidence for it. Right. And there was probably a lot of other like times where they tried to find this evidence where it didn't work out. Right. And it finally did here in this case. So we can definitively say that cooking was happening 780,000 years ago by Homo erectus. Right. And that's the first time we've been able to say that with scientific evidence to back it up. So that's yeah. what's really cool here. So here's the thing. Yeah. A couple of million, one to two million years ago, uh, our ancestors started getting taller and developing bigger brains. Right. We're like, okay, so what's driving this, mm-hmm. right? Natural selection, people say, but also not everything is necessarily natural or sele- sexual selection. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes traits just develop because of genetic mutation, like something happens mm-hmm. and then that person happens to be prolific. It's not necessarily even a trait that maybe makes them more attractive as a sexual partner or more able to survive their surroundings. Although, you know, being taller and having a bigger brain might do that. Yeah. So there's that. But it doesn't have to necessarily. It just could be something that somebody who's prolific uh, has kids and then those kids are prolific and then those kids are prolific and then that trait gets populated throughout mm-hmm. and it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to be related to one of those other things. Like I said, I just wanted to make that note. Yeah. So, but what this is talking about here is that's more like the individual development and how like individual traits get passed down and into a population. But what happens here is that this is more like how an entire group began to like move in a certain direction, you know? Yeah. But they do it from an individual standpoint. Well, yeah. But if, if an entire village figures out how to get more calories into their body, they will become bigger. They will be stronger. They will have, be better developed and all of the the children from that population you know and on down from there so i think it's it's kind of like that like they just develop the way to get more calories a more calorie rich diet and and that helped to right and this was a byproduct yes and 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 exactly yeah because you know at that point in time like getting calories into your body was basically the most important thing that they were doing on a day-by-day basis sure and it could be too that you know they had the maybe the genetic mutation or something like that to maybe even be taller or have bigger brains, maybe, but they didn't yeah. have the fuel to, to, to do it, to yeah. make that happen. Yeah. Right. So support it. Anyway, what we're talking about, cause we're just kind of getting past the, uh, the beginning here is again, ancestors one to two million years ago, getting taller, developing bigger brains. That's in the archeological record, mm-hmm. the paleontological record, I should say. Yep. And we're like, okay, so what could have driven that change? It doesn't just happen. What, what, what helps do that? And it's long thought that, as you said, these calorie-rich diets or what became calorie-rich diets maybe contributed to that. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult to know exactly what people ate at a certain point in prehistory because it's just hard to find evidence for it, Mm -hmm. right? And But now there's new evidence that uh, Homo erectus first ate and cooked food around 780,000 years ago, and that's what this is talking about. And the earliest evidence before that that we knew was pretty solid was about 170,000 years ago with Neanderthals and what became early humans. Yeah. yeah. So that does push back the date for cooking food specifically by right. 600,000 years. Right. Because while we knew that Homo erectus obviously was eating food, they had to have been eating food right. and there was evidence of it. We didn't know how they were eating it. Was it raw? Was it cooked? Yeah. What was going on? And the guess was that they were cooking it because yeah. it makes sense that they were, but we just didn't have evidence. No. And I got to talk about the whole rewriting thing here. It, it might seem to a journalist or even to a science journalist that, 
you know, a textbook, if you look in that or you look up the history of, you know, you Google, when did people first start cooking food? It might be what appears to be a definitive answer based on this earliest evidence of 170,000 years ago. And therefore we have to quote, rewrite everything because (laughs) now it's this, but in reality, archeologists, scientists, paleontologists would never say this is the time that people started cooking. This is just the earliest evidence we have of it. And if we find evidence at 170,000 years that people were fully cooking and having a good time, well, obviously, they didn't just invent that and start having a party. Right. That was passed down. And it's at least a few generations back from there. And turns out it's, it's more than a few generations. Yeah, so, definitely. So now that means if we have evidence 780,000 years ago, that probably means that for a pretty long time before that, they were also probably cooking. We just yeah, don't have probably, the evidence for it. Probably, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So this is the the people, and we'll, we'll get to where this is. It's basically in Israel. But mm-hmm. um, the people of the Ashleyan culture... We know that they ate fruit, vegetables, large game, and fish. Um, we can find those sorts of remains, so to yeah. speak, in in you know caves at the uh, sites, those that, types of environments. yeah, places yeah. that we knew they were occupying. Yeah, but we just didn't know if it was raw or cooked. To be honest, mm-hmm. you know, are they just like nomming into a fish golem style, or are they, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, right? Well, what's really cool about this study is that what they they definitely went looking for evidence, and they recently studied the like crystal structure. Of yeah. these burnt fish teeth remains that were found at Gesher Benno Yaakov in the North Jordan Valley of modern day Israel. Yeah. And they knew these remains were related to a homo erectus site that were in that area. Yeah. And they studied the crystal structure and they didn't really go into detail on how they were doing this, but basically something related to the crystal structure would tell them what temperature the the teeth got to. It's the formation of crystals. Yeah, exactly. Happens at certain temperatures. Yeah. yeah. So they found that these teeth had been, they called it cooked, but let's just say they were burned (laughs) under a 500 degree Celsius or 932 degree Fahrenheit temperature. Yeah. So that's pretty hot. But I think what they're saying is that it suggests that they had control over the fire and that it was done purposely rather than naturally, because I think a natural fire would get significantly hotter than that. So it would just burn out of control. Yeah, exactly. So like because the temperature is lower and in like cooking and fire temperature range. That's why they're saying that this is evidence of a controlled fire. I do wonder sometimes like, you know, they, they would have had, you know, in certain areas, they, it seems like they've had mastery over, of over fire for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at some point you're right. I mean, people were eating raw meat and vegetables Mm -hmm. around a fire and someone threw one in at some point and then someone else pulled it back out. Yeah. After been in there for a little while and said, Oh my God, this is tasty. Put a little salt, (laughs) a little garlic on this. And wow, we've got a thing. I mean, I'm not sure it was quite like that, but (laughs) (laughs) just saying they had spices. So they they certainly figured it out at some point. Yeah. (laughs) And again, when we talk about these things, this is the first evidence that we're seeing of something, not necessarily the first instance of it. Right. And that is very important because it could have been happening a lot earlier for sure. Yeah, we'll never say, know the first. It's impossible to know the first. Not no. when you're talking about archaeological evidence. No. I mean, if you end up with uh, a really large sample set and you can say, like, if we have a lot of examples of people at certain time frames and then the increase in frequency of a thing starts happening visibly in the timeline, mm-hmm. you won't know the first, but you can say it generally happened yeah. in this span. Yeah. right? But we don't even have enough evidence to say that. This was the time frame right. within 100,000 years that people started doing this. Yeah. There's just you know? not enough homo no. erectus sites to be able to really do that. Yeah. So, yeah. But this, 
what they're saying is this gives them again evidence that and this is the first evidence of this mm-hmm. that homo erectus had the cognitive ability to control fire and cook food mm-hmm. for sure you know they've got the ability to figure all that out and put two and two together and come up with uh you know some roast salmon mm-hmm. so and as we mentioned earlier the hypothesis has always been that the development of cooking contributed to the evolution of mm-hmm. homo erectus into modern homo sapiens and neanderthals that we you know find evidence for later on but until now there was just no evidence for it they, it's just really hard to find evidence of cooking specifically right. in the archaeological record that far back i would have to think too that man once you really get used to cooked food it almost would become a crutch because what if yeah. you just don't have access to that and you're you're not into the raw food anymore you know you don't develop a taste for it it's like you really like for example in the uh in the world-class television show on peacock la brea they (laughs) are in 10,000 bc and they're having a hard time with food yeah right because they don't know how to butcher animals and let alone start up a fire and cook them right right? so they're they're difficultly and, and i have a feeling that if the apocalypse were happened tomorrow and then we have no electricity, we have nothing and maybe mm-hmm. no supplies, we're just out in the middle of nowhere. Now, we have an RV, so we'll be fine. And it's fully <laughs> self-contained. We don't have propane anymore. We're fully electric. We can cook off the sun. Uh-huh. You know, we can do all kinds of stuff. So if the apocalypse hit tomorrow, the thing that is amazing to me is we'll still be able to run our instant pot. Not for too long during the day. Yeah. But we'll still be, because we have solar panels. We yeah. Have lithium batteries. We'll still be able to cook. Yeah, until those lithium batteries die. Now, I don't know about the hunting piece of this. Like, I'm not going to well, go out and, you know, but take down a Exactly. A chicken. But that's, <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. You get used to a certain process, yeah. right? And back then, if they got used to cooked food, a few generations down the line, it's like, okay, do you even know how or want to eat raw food? Yeah. And could that be bad if you, for well, some reason, can't make a fire? And, and that was the other thing is that, they wouldn't have wanted to go back yeah. to raw food once they figure it out because cooking food makes it easier to digest and also it's safer yeah. I mean, because of bacteria and other issues that come up from raw food. So both of those things were very key to the body and brain growth and right. development that they needed to move along in the evolutionary like timeline. It makes me wonder, there was a movie, I remember when I was in the anthropology club back in University of North Dakota in the early 2000s, we used to have a movie night that was mm-hmm. open to everybody. Right. And we showed this movie and I cannot remember for the life of me what the name of it was. But either way, there was a group of people, so to speak. It was an indiscriminate time in the past. It was mm-hmm. a long time ago. But there was a person whose job it was to carry like the ember that would oh, start the fire. Right. And they carried it in this like sort of container Are you that sure they it made. wasn't like Clan of the Cave Bear or something? It really wasn't Clan of the Cave Bear. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you would think it was. But right. I can't remember what it was called, but it was something along those lines. And mm-hmm. And it was their job, again, to to carry this. And it was at some point, too, when humans were mixing with Neanderthals, because yeah. I think there was some of that going on. Yeah. So it, was a, so it was a long time ago, and they were carrying that around, which makes me wonder if there's a little bit of truth to that, because fire would have been pretty sacred once you got used to it. Mm-hmm. You need to start it to stay warm at night, to keep animals away, to cook your food. It's yeah. the lifeblood of a, of a society that has grown to depend on it. Mm-hmm. Would they have figured out a way to carry this ember without starting it on fire, but mm-hmm. to keep it going enough? You'd have to blow on it every once in a while, mm-hmm. but not blow on it enough to burn the things around it. Yeah. Maybe put it in a, in a soaked thing of wood or something. Mm-hmm. It would be interesting, you know, it's something we'd have to think about if we needed fire and had to carry with us. Yeah, totally. You know, and you can't just start it. Well, if you get really good at starting it, though, like that becomes the way that you you manage that problem. And that's another thing, too, right? You need to have that skill as well, but just in case, if you don't have to. Yeah, totally. Anyway, so looking at these uh, 
brain and body development theories, um, there's all kinds of stuff going on, a lot of mm-hmm. hypotheses going around. But one of the hypotheses is that early humans migrated out of Africa by following freshwater lakes and rivers because a lot of early human sites are often found near freshwater. Right. It is mm-hmm. another staple, just like fire became. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And obviously they need water. So that is one very good reason why the sites were found there. Yeah. But another hypothesis is that maybe they were following the fish. Yeah. And yes, this study specifically looked at fish teeth, but obviously we know they're eating large game too. Mm -hmm. So these guys might be just a little bit skewed towards (laughs) fish. Right. But there is some evidence that like maybe fish are a little bit overlooked. They're very, very rich in protein and nutrients. Mm -hmm. They are available all year long. And... It's yeah. just, it's possible that they were a bigger part of the diet of Homo erectus and early humans than they have previously been gra- right. been given credit for. And we don't really know how they caught the fish. No. Uh, there's no real evidence for that going that far back. No. And there probably wouldn't be, even if they made little fish weirs. Right. It would be and things like that. Gone. But catching fish is not hard. No. Like in case people don't really know what a fish weir is, it's kind of cool. Yeah. Because like rivers kind of especially rivers near the oceans mm-hmm. they're freshwater you know you got your fish in there that are going back and forth from the ocean maybe like salmon do mm-hmm. things like that and the 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 rivers they they have a tide almost and mm-hmm. they raise and lower so if you build a wall and the fish go upstream of that wall when the water goes down the fish get caught behind it yeah and you basically just snatch them out of the water yeah it's not that hard very and easy it, to grab and if you're just been, moving rocks around yeah and then to time like well, those rocks we have evidence of it. So we know that yeah. native cultures did do that, but it could have happened way far back in time and geology would have moved right. those rocks around and we wouldn't even know that they had been well, that way. And you didn't even necessarily have to build it because there's always these little eddies and things oh, like true. that that are just, just natural it, fish yeah, weirs. Yeah. yeah. Just take so. advantage of the natural, natural yeah. rock formations for sure. Right. And a lot of, a lot of cultures do that today. They you just sit at a good point in the river where you know there's going to be a fish hanging out and yeah, reach in and scoop it up well apparently. it sounds like they had a lot of fish and once they had it all <laughs> cooked they probably had some leftovers so let's find out how they handled those <laughs> on the other side of the break <laughs> you've worked hard for what you have your money your assets your 401k and home isn't it all worth protecting nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft lifelock ultimate plus helps protect your finances with up to three million dollars in reimbursement LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, segment two, episode 197. Of the Food Blog Podcast. Food Blog Podcast. <laughs> the Neanderthal Food Blog Podcast. The Neander Food. Ne- Neander Blog. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So this article is called Oldest Cooked Leftovers Ever Found Suggest Neanderthals Were Foodies. It was written by uh, Linda Geddes of The Guardian. Again, it was near our Thanksgiving, but The Guardian is a British mm-hmm. publication. So, True. you know, maybe they weren't going for that. But either way, the article is, again, 
she's writing about an article that was in um, a academic publication and it's about some leftovers essentially it was yeah. it's not really leftovers it's charred yeah. remains right. of food and it was a cooked meal for sure found in Shanadar cave in Iraq and there's mm-hmm. been a lot of stuff found in Shanadar cave yeah that's and definitely familiar they yeah yeah well there's early neanderthal stuff in there mm-hmm. i think and i don't i didn't look at this i'm just coming to my head right now that Shanadar is one of the first places where we saw evidence of intentional Neanderthal burial because I think oh. it looked like they'd thrown like flowers down there or oh, something. Oh, right. On the baby, on yeah. the, the kids' graves. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah that might have been Shanadar. We might be there. totally like making that up right now. So <laughs> yeah, maybe. Don't don't give us too much crap if we're wrong. <laughs> right. So Shanadar Cave is 500 miles north of Baghdad in the Zagros Mountains. Yes. Yeah, pretty big area for all this stuff. Chris Hunt, one of the archaeologists excavating the site, is a professor of cultural paleoecology at Liverpool John Morris University. Mm. And they did, in this study, they did recreate one of the recipes we're going to talk about. It was sort of a pancake flatbread nutty taste yeah. that the researchers did. Yeah, yeah. So Sounds like it was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds like it wasn't, it wasn't terrible. Yeah. You can't make it with the exact same ingredients, but mm-hmm. you can get pretty close. But anyway, these burned food remnants that they found in this cave... Where, and they didn't find them like in a body. They were just like around. Yeah. But they were the oldest that have ever been found that were clearly an assembled meal that was mm-hmm. put together with ingredients and cooked and then presumably consumed. Yeah. Yeah. And then whatever was left behind is the leftover piece of it. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. The dwellings in these caves are thought to be around 70,000 years old. Mm-hmm. So that's going back quite a ways. But the team also looked at as a sort of a comparison. Well, they looked at a site called... French the, I think it's French the, I don't know what it is. French the uh, cave in southern Greece. Yeah. This cave only dated to about 12,000 years, but there's a lot of similar charred remains. Mm -hmm. And they used a scanning electron microscope to analyze the remains from Shanidar and from French the cave. And there were some correlations there. Mm -hmm. So, as a whole, they showed that the Paleolithic diets of these people were diverse and complex and included, and this is cool. So this is how you know there's like preparation going on. Mm-hmm. Several steps in the food preparation process. Yep. Yeah. They had seeds and they called them pulse seeds. Pulse is a type of seed. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah. It's got to be. It, yeah. It sounds weird, but they don't mean the actual action of pulsing, but like the, that's a type of seed. Yeah. Yeah. Type yeah. of seed. Mm-hmm. But they had to, you had to soak these in order to make them pliable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you had to grind them basically mm-hmm. once they were soaked. So there's like a, a multi-process thing there. And I would imagine they had to soak for quite a while. So they're, they're preparing dinner and they've got to find, like gather these seeds, mm-hmm. soak these seeds. And then once they've been soaked, I don't know if you grind them as they're wet or if the soaking just kind of loosens up the shells and then you can soak them up. You can pound them up after That's they dry. That's a good question. Because like I have some experience making like cashew milk, basically. Mm-hmm. And now cashew is a softer nut. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to soak it for very long. And if you boil it and with the soaking, it, it goes even faster. And you can move on to whatever you're making with it. I was actually making like a cashew sauce. So it wasn't quite like milk, cashew milk. But, but yeah, like... It's actually a quicker process than you think, depending on how soft the nut or seed is to start with. Right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, amongst the other stuff that they found, um, there was also evidence of other like seeds Mm -hmm. and other food items that were that were part of this making of Mm -hmm. the thing that showed almost a certain depending on what was that what else was out there and what they kind of rejected for this yeah not that this was the only meal they were making this yeah, is just yeah. one that we have evidence for but it shows a preference for certain flavors and and certainly flavor combinations because mm-hmm. you don't you don't just toss in 
something that takes preparation just because you want to. Yeah. You know, you toss it in because you know that these things together taste good. Right. You know, and you might you might have a, a little bit of a trial and error there. Well, that is true, but they wouldn't have known what the season was when when they made this. They don't they can't say what time of year probably. So it could be that well, these were seasonally gathered ingredients and that's why they were all put together if they had a way to preserve them seventy thousand years ago they could have been eating them off season but you know when certain things are growing and blooming and when are the Mm -hmm. seeds available you know stuff like that so because they also included wild nuts and grasses um, Mm -hmm. and and lentils and like wild mustard yeah it'd be pretty easy to know when that stuff is available and that might have been driving the choices they were making to some extent yeah as well we eat nut pancakes in the spring and yeah. we eat uh you know rabbit in mustard the winter. grass yeah. whatever yeah right. totally so <laughs> yeah anyway they also another little interesting piece of evidence here is they likely pounded these seeds using local rocks so they would have had a mono oh, matate yeah. situation going on mm-hmm. or like a mortar and pestle kind of thing and those local rocks i mean there's little bits that come off. Yeah. You can only clean it as, as, as much as you possibly mm-hmm. can, but it still would have made the food a little bit gritty and you'd have had a, you know, like a crunch every once in a while. Yeah. And if that was part of your regular diet and the regular way you eat, that could explain another thing that we see about Neanderthal teeth, which are often in a, a pretty degraded state yeah. for adults. That's super interesting. So it was a harder rock like you see for a mono, like here in the United States, for example, the mm-hmm. mono rocks are like super hard. And while they do get wear on them, obviously that's how we know they're they're monos. I don't think as much stone would come off when you're using it. They using a softer rock that would crumble well, into the food. Worse. I think we're talking. <laughs> I think we're talking long term here because while you look at a a mono that we find in a lot of cultures in say the the West where we work mm-hmm. mostly where you find those. Yeah, it is a harder rock, but when you say where and the fact that it's rounded, it's rounded because pieces have been taken off of it, and those yeah. pieces taken off go into your food. And sure, one meal may only have one or two little crunchies in it. Oh, but it's like a... But you're eating this every day for your whole life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not like one meal. It's all the time. Yeah. You Mm. know, so anyway, we have a bonus segment for members. And what the author of this article actually went and found and sourced local ingredients Mm -hmm. and tried to make this. Yeah. And we'll talk about that in the bonus segment and how she did and, and, and what it came out like. So definitely check that out. Now we're going to go all the way over to Rome and less than 2,000 years ago. Yeah. So we're going forward in time by like 68,000 years, give or take, (laughs) (laughs) to this next article. Yeah. And by then, they looked at all the cooked fish and all the other stuff and said, forget that. We've got snacks now. (laughs) Back in a minute. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. 
Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 197, segment three. And as promised, we are going to talk about old snacks found in sewers <laughs> beneath the Colosseum in Rome. Yeah, I, I love this because, you know, snacks. Snacks are great. <laughs> yeah. And, and I get to say, another pop culture reference, the yeah. Snacks Now reference is actually a quote from Goodwill Hunting. It is. They're sitting at the baseball field watching like little leaguers play <laughs> and... Uh, oh, no, no, they're not no, sitting there. No, they went through the yeah, drive-thru. Yeah, they went through the drive-thru after that, and then they had food, burgers. They had yeah. burgers, and they were going to beat up on these guys, and the and the one kid is like, oh, you know, if you wanted to beat them up, we should have done it earlier. We got snacks now. And he <laughs> refers to burgers as snacks, and for whatever reason, we do that all the time. Yeah, like every like dinner is called, but we got snacks now. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to do this. I got snacks now, and I've got like a lasagna sitting in front of me. Yeah. So, oh, that's a great movie. I know. Anyway. Yeah. So, Roman snacks. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Okay. So... Spectators at Rome's ancient amphitheater probably did have snacks, just like you would at a sporting event today, right? right? So it is kind of logical to think that they probably did, but now they have evidence for it. Mm -hmm. And they have found evidence of olives, nuts, meats, cherries, grapes, figs, blackberries, and peaches underneath the Colosseum from around 1900 years ago. So not only did they have snacks, they weren't super great about cleaning up. Nope, they really weren't. It was kind of like a drop your peanut shells on the ground kind of a moment, <laughs> and it all just sort of collected at the bottom is what it sounds like. For which, 500 years. Yeah. <laughs> let's just keep doing this. I don't know when the Colosseum stopped being used, actually. Uh, I don't have that in my head. I think it was... It was uh, used for a while. Yeah, it was. It was a long time. I think it was yeah. around the, the first part of the millennia, you know, like yeah. one to 300 uh, CE somewhere in there somewhere in there yeah. yeah so that was basically it they had snacks and that was the the snack part of the article as with so many of these articles that we read they put this like catchy thing in the headline and you go to read it and you're like oh cool there's like two sentences about the thing in the headline yeah. and then it goes on to other things but but that's okay there's a lot of cool stuff that they found here so in addition to the evidence of the snacks that the spectators were eating they also found bones from lions bears dogs and other animals mm -hmm. and they're assuming or guessing that these are probably from some kind of show that was going on at the Coliseum, either hunting yeah. demonstration. Maybe they were fighting each other. Probably that's what they would do with like lions and bears. I would guess. Right. Yeah. A lot of violent things happen in the Coliseum. Definitely. The Coliseums in general. Yeah. 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 So they were either fighting each other, fighting people, you know, yeah. somebody showing their prowess by hunting a lion in the, oh, in the sure. ring for sport. Yeah. That definitely you know, could have been a thing. Which is yeah. just like terrifying to think about. Yeah. I'm, I think there's um, written accounts of the kinds of things that were at the Coliseum. So we, we do have a pretty good guess at why those bones were there and what they were for. Yeah. So. so one of the vendors walking around handing out snacks. <laughs> Clearly uh, <laughs> dropped a bunch of stuff, including their tip money. And yeah. <laughs> they found 50 bronze coins that date back to between the third and seventh centuries. Okay. Yeah. So much later yeah. than I thought about the use of the Colosseum. Yeah. 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 There's a rare silver coin from around 171 CE, which yeah. marks the 10 year anniversary of Emperor Marcus Aurelius's rule. Mm hmm. So some pretty good, like, datable stuff that they're finding here. Yeah. And all of this is found in the, like, lower sewer area. So it's just kind of crazy, though, because the spectators would have been up in the stands. They must be, like, sweeping all the, the crap off, and it just gets eventually pushed all the way right. down into the sewer area. That's That must be the only way that all of this sort of collects down there together. Well, and if I'm not mistaken, again, the Romans had a pretty sophisticated, like, plumbing system and mm -hmm. their aqueducts and all that stuff. So... You know, a lot of this probably washed away, but well, you end yeah. up with like 
you know, like like the arteries of somebody who eats too much fried food. It just builds up around the edges. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and you build this layer up and yeah. you just, you know, it ends up just being caked on and they probably didn't have the best cleaning methods for getting all that off. Yeah, probably not. So, yeah. Well, these excavations began in January of 2021. And one thing they really glossed over in the article, and I would really love to learn more about this, is that. They apparently one aspect of the excavation was using these wire guided robots mm-hmm. to navigate the drainage system because I guess it was too dangerous or too complicated for people to actually physically get in there. So sure. they're using robots to kind of see what was going on down there and and learn, you know, what they were doing with this area below the Coliseum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they weren't specifically looking for this food. They just kind of found it while they were doing this other stuff. Yeah, it was all yeah. part of this like larger excavation just to kind of well, I mean, sewer sewers just like yeah, just like like a privy, like privies are yeah. are full of stuff that people have discarded, which tells right. us a whole lot about the society that they came from. It's yeah, it's whatever you you're done with. <laughs> yeah, one yeah. of the things they were trying to find with these robots was how the whole hydraulic system worked because it's pretty well known through ethnographic evidence mm-hmm. in written history that they would fill up the yeah. Coliseum with water. Yeah, and have like mock naval battles. In yeah, there, which it's, is crazy (laughs) like how could they control water and uh, well enough to do this it's so insane romans were just such geniuses when it came to that kind of stuff yeah it's pretty nuts yeah so that yeah they're definitely trying to figure out how they were able to do that with these robots Mm -hmm. and i'm all about learning more about roman water spectacles so (laughs) yeah that sounds awesome yeah indeed Mm -hmm. i think those are the glasses they wore to be able to see the naval battles Oh my god, like a spyglass. Water spectacles. Oh <laughs> man, it was so bad. My brain didn't even go. So obvious. So bad. Yeah. You're the worst. I know. <laughs> well, that was kind of a short segment, but that's fine. That's all we've got for this week. We do have, as I mentioned, a bonus segment, and we're gonna it's a really short bonus segment. So if you're not a member of the Archaeology Podcast Network, then head over to arcpodnet.com slash members. You can gift somebody a membership for Christmas if you want oh, or whatever you holiday you support this year. Yep. Like, give them a Hanukkah present of the Archaeology Podcast Network annual membership. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think the annual is less than like $75 or something like mm-hmm. that US because you, you get a, I think it's a 25% discount. You'd think I'd know this having set it all up. <laughs> but either way, it's like $7.99 a month. And uh, we are doing actually, we're, we've got a schedule now. We did a cultural share event, we call it, mm-hmm. which again is free to attend. And we're going to do them quarterly for now. Our next one is coming up in February. I'm not supposed to say this yet, but I think we have a tentative date around February 19th or so. Okay. But official word will come out of that soon. Mm-hmm. But we uh, we set up some speakers and, and it's interactive. You can ask them questions, do all kinds of stuff you want. But of course, you can't see it after it's been live unless you're a member because the video is on your member pages. Right. So again, all that back catalog, if you became a member tomorrow, would be available to you mm-hmm. to experience. You also get ad-free shows from the APN. I mean, in December, everything's ad-free because we're shifting hosting services. But <laughs> after that, we're going to be part of an advertising service and mm-hmm. it's probably going to start ramping up in the first quarter of 2023 because we have to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. So if you want to help us because stay ad free become a member mm-hmm. <laughs> and we'll we'll take all the ads off we're not greedy we just <laughs> want to be able to support this thing yeah so anyway become a member buy a membership for your family member arcpodnet.com forward slash members and then you can hear this bonus segment coming up at the end and we appreciate it so we'll be back next week with some more great news articles bye Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. 
Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.arcpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. .com.